Welcome back to the Rob O'Donnell Show on WILK News Radio, 103.1 FM, 910, 980 AM, or anywhere in the nation on the Odyssey app. I am truly humbled to bring in our next guest. Commander Kirk Leopold, United States Navy retired, was the commanding officer of the USS Cole when it came under suicide terrorist attack by Al-Qaeda in the port of Aden, Yemen, on October 12, 2000, killing 17 American sailors and injuring 37 more. During his command, he and his crew distinguished themselves by saving the American warship from sinking. This event is widely recognized as one of the most brazen acts of terrorism by al-Qaeda prior to September 11, 2001. He's the author of the book Front Burner, Al-Qaeda's Attack on the USS Cole. He's a 1981 United States Naval Academy graduate, attended the Navy Postgraduate School, earning a Master's of Science in Systems Engineering, He's also the graduate of the United States Army Command and General Staff College and the Joint Forces Staff College, and he served as the administrative aide to the Secretary of the Navy. Commander, thank you for joining the Rob O'Donnell Show here in Northeast Pennsylvania. I truly appreciate your time today. Rob, it's an honor to be on your show. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I, I have had two children. My audience knows me well. I've had two children attend the United States Naval Academy. One's a graduate of a naval aviator flying F-18s in Oceana. The other one's in her third year there. Both have heard you speak, and right after hearing you speak, both of them called me to tell me how profound your lectures were to them. And uh, I just want to thank you for that and imprinting that on my children. And tell us a little bit about—one of the other things, let me stop there— I reached out to you on the anniversary of the the bombing of the USS Cole on October 12th, and and you respectfully told me, listen, I don't do interviews or media on this day. I'm heading to Arlington to honor my sailors from that day. And that tells me everything I need to know about your leadership and who you are as a commander. So I I just want to thank you for your service, and if you can walk us through a little bit of that, I'd appreciate it. Absolutely, Rob. Thank you very much. Well, this last October 12th is the 23rd anniversary Uh, The attack took place, obviously, October 12, 2000. The USS Cole had deployed out of our home port of Norfolk, Virginia. We had operated in the Med for about six weeks, came through the Suez Canal on the 9th of October, and pulled into Aden that morning to take on what was going to be around 250,000 gallons of fuel. We are below 50% or right around there and expected to be there six to eight hours. We tied up next to the pier. We had been pumping fuel for about 45 minutes, starting at about 10.30. I was sitting at my desk that morning at 11.18 when there was literally a thunderous explosion. And you could feel all 505 feet and 8,400 tons of guided missile destroyer suddenly and violently thrust up into the right. And as we settled back down in the water, power had failed, lights went out. I immediately knew we had been attacked because we had been shoved upward and toward the pier, which meant that something on the port or left side of the ship had exploded rather than a fuel explosion on the ship or the pier where we would have been pushed out into the harbor. The crew, even though the announcing system had failed or what we call the 1MC, even though the battery backup for it failed and the backup system failed, They immediately fell back on their training. They divided into one of three groups, damage control to save the ship, triage to save their shipmates, security to stop another attack. And as a testament to their true heroism, we had the ship stable in a little over an hour. 
That first day, we evacuated 33 wounded off the ship, and of those 33, 32 had survived. There would be five more whose symptoms manifested over the next couple days. That made for the 37 wounded. And we literally were able to get a muster report in about four and a half hours. And as another testament to how well the Navy did things stateside, sadly, 17 sailors got a knock on the door that evening or first thing the next morning informing them that their loved one had paid the ultimate price for the very freedoms that we enjoy every day. Unbelievable. Unbelievable fortitude of the sailors experiencing that and falling back on their training to do what they've been trained to do, what you drill to do day in and day out and hope they do in a situation like this and did it and it did it very well. On the anniversary on October 12th here on my show, I listed the names of each one of your sailors out of respect for them and their service. And, you know, they will never be forgotten. We will honor their memory. I know just by speaking to you that day, it's, it's as well for you. Well, I always like to take time. Like I said, when you reached out the first time, I was like honored that I would be asked to be on your show. But that's kind of a day that, you know, even 23 years on, the memories are as vivid now as they were that singular moment in time. And it's the least I can do to take time to go to Arlington. I have three sailors buried in Section 60, which is some of the most hollowed ground in Arlington itself, and then one in the Columbarium. And I go there to, uh, to pay my respects for their sacrifice, but also to honor and remember all 17 of my sailors who paid that price. And, you know, it also gives me an opportunity to reflect back on exactly what what my crew accomplished that day and in the 17 days that we were in port before we got USS Cole towed out, put onto that heavy lift ship where she was brought back stateside, completely refurbished and brought up to date, and that ship is still out there defending freedom today. It is, and speaking about defending freedom today, I want to get your take on a most recent incident, the USS Kearney, a U.S. Navy-guided missile destroyer that was in the Red Sea on Thursday, October 19th, when it intercepted land attack cruise missiles and several drones. Now, later on, they said that uh, it was specifically four cruise missiles and 14 drones launched by the Iranian-backed Houthi rebels. Uh, give us your take on that. What happens in command and control when something like that's obviously they had the rules of engagement to intercept these. Can you walk us through a little bit, um, for unclassified reasons, of course, um, how that works? Sure. Normally you can take the, the, the Aegis weapon system, which is the centerpiece, is the SPY-1D or SPY-1D radar. And on board guided missile destroyers like that. I was fortunate that I commissioned the very first Arleigh Burke-class destroyer, USS Arleigh Burke, in command of USS Cole. In the case of USS Kearney, you can set that system up to give the operators and the missile system an alert so that you know if there is a threat that is inbound, how far away that threat is, how fast it's moving. You can make a very quick determination. You can even turn a degree of it over to the system itself that allows you to respond with really defense in depth. You've got the surface-to-air missiles. You've got the five-inch gun. And then you have the 20-millimeter close-in weapon system. All of those are designed to ensure that nothing can get through to the ship itself. And USS Kearney was clearly configured following the rules of engagement. 
got the alerts and notifications, and an exceptionally well-trained crew following the rules of engagement that had been given to them, thankfully, by the uh, theater commander, were able to respond and shoot down all of those missiles and drones. Now, based on the, the press conferences that happened out after that, they're saying that uh, it's the first time in recent memory that a U.S. Navy ship in the Middle East has engaged missiles and drones that were not directly aimed at the vessel. And like you said, they've had rules of engagement planned out for them where they were obviously allowed to intercept these. But explain us a little bit how it would work for them to target then the launching zones, of the, the launching sites of these type of cruise missiles and drones. Well, when it came to the actual launching sites, it, I doubt that, that USS Kearney would have had any assets that it would have been able to ter- determine exactly where they were come from. We would use other national intelligence assets to be able to tell us exactly where the launch sites were. Most likely those are space-based assets, but that's where you get a determination, and then you obviously are going to take a look at it and make a determination Okay, are they going to stay stationary? Are they mobile? What is the targeting requirements? What were the pre-launch indicators that may have come up? Because what you want to do is build an intelligence picture so that in the future, should the United States choose to be proactive rather than reactive, which is what we are now, we in fact could get indications or warning and then take appropriate action to ensure that those sites are taken out and do not threaten either the Israelis or U.S. national security interests whether it is a ship or a base or others. What is your concern for the our assets that are in this theater right now? The, I mean, we have, we have battle groups in the Mediterranean, the Red Sea, and the Persian Gulf. Um, dealing with this now, there has been 27, I think 28 after last night, attacks on U.S. assets by... Iranian-backed, in both in Syria and Iraq, by our, our Iranian-backed rebels. What are your main concerns for that area? Rob, one of my greatest concerns right now is how the Biden administration is approaching this whole conflict, just like they did with Ukraine. They are so concerned with political posturing that they are not, in fact, looking at the larger strategic picture. We have given Ukraine lots of arms, but we have fallen short in giving them what they need in enough overwhelming force to push Russia out. When it comes to Israel, right now, thankfully, we are giving them a free hand to conduct operations as necessary to absolutely crush and eliminate Hamas. But even today, we saw Secretary of State Blinken going to Israel and really trying to strong them into an operational pause or a ceasefire because we're worried about civilian casualties. Well, we're still, the Israelis are still taking inbound missiles from Hamas that are targeting innocent civilians. And by the same token, Hamas has chosen to use every one of the Palestinian people as a human shield in the tunnels, under hospitals, and in other areas, including the refugee camps. So I think that when you look at it in the larger picture globally, United Kingdom, the European Union, NATO, none of them are calling for any kind of pause or ceasefire, but yet the United States under this administration is. The reason is why. It is because of political posturing and because of political concerns rather than operational necessity, which needs to drive it to ensure that this threat is eliminated. And then the United States better start taking a bigger look because for 40 plus years, especially just last week, when unfortunately we honored the 241 
Marines and sailors that were killed in the Beirut barracks bombing 40 years ago. And who is that conducted by? Iran. And who are we still living with? Proxy groups from Iran that are killing Israelis and, oh, by the way, killed dozens of Americans in that October 7th attack. And not only close to that anniversary was our embassy confronted again, you know, this year, just just this month, with uh, protesters throwing rocks, setting fires, and, and, and firing weapons at the embassy to where we had to talk about beefing up security there. We moved a Marine Expeditionary Unit into the, into the theater as well. But now you have the leader of Hezbollah in Lebanon saying that America will pay the price and, again, increasing their aggression on the northern border, including verbal attacks on to warnings to America. Well, one of the things that I would that I would commend everyone to do is that while I know a lot of people want to get engaged immediately, and I think that, you know, we, we've been kind of pushing Israel, don't stop the ground, the ground war, don't start the ground war, don't don't push for an expansion. By the same token, the United States wants to ensure, and I think we work not only with the Israelis, but also some of our Arab allies in the region that have a number of bases to ensure that we could get the assets in place, not only with aircraft carrier groups, strike groups with the uh, Gerald Ford and the Eisenhower, but also ensure we could get a number of Air Force squadrons and bombers into the region that should the, should the conflict expand beyond Israel, and now you're engaging, not just they're engaging not just with Hamas, but they're dealing with Hezbollah out of Lebanon, they're dealing with the Quds forces that are up there in Syria. You could see proxy forces in Iraq begin to uh, attack our forces there. This, there is going to come a point where the United States is going to have to say, there is no daylight between the actions of a proxy group that is terrorists and the state sponsors who do it. And we are going to have to find and figure out what we're going to do to address Iran. Because until we actually begin to take on Iran and make them pay a price, we will continue to have Americans killed and the world will continue to have innocent civilians killed by terrorists sponsored by Iran. You brought up a uh our carrier battle groups that are in this area, specifically the USS Gerald R. Ford and the USS Dwight D. Eisenhower, I believe one's in the Med and one's in the Persian Gulf. And now you have the Marine Expeditionary Unit 26 in the area. What kind of capabilities do these assets have? I mean, is it rare that we have two carrier groups in that kind of proximity? In this day and age, yes. It is rare that we would have them there in proximity for any length of time. They will normally do... You know, they'll be together for maybe a day or two to have what they call turnover. In other words, hey, here's what's really going on. Here's kind of the situational awareness. These are the things you need to be aware of. Now they are operating in coordination with each other. I'm sure that they are putting together strike packages, that the Joint Chiefs of Staff is burning the midnight oil to ensure that the number of assets we have in the region, along with what are the rules of engagement, what is the backup plan for getting these ships refueled at sea? What is the plan for getting more ammunition stocks into the area, whether it's missiles or bombs or, uh, you know, five-inch gun rounds? We want to make sure that we have enough in the area that should Iran choose to expand this conflict and they eventually start targeting U.S. forces, that we can respond appropriately 
and ensure that we quickly take Iran down as quickly as we can so that they no longer have that power to project it regionally and threaten the U.S., our allies, or Israel. All right, sir. Commander Kirk Leopold, the U.S. Navy retired former commanding officer of the USS Cole during the 2000, uh, 2000 terrorist attack on October 12th. Uh, sir, I truly appreciate I, I We got it all in. We were able to extend the piece. I, I truly uh, appreciate your take on this, and I hope we can have you back on as this moves forward, hopefully for the better. Rob, thank you very much for having me on. And for your listeners out there, I would just ask them, please continue to support those young men and women that are out there at the tip of the spear defending our nation, and I would be honored to be back on your show. Thank you, sir. I appreciate you joining us today. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. It's uh, 427 time for traffic and weather. Sorry, Nikki. A little late. (laughs) That's okay. Uh, That's okay. I was trying to make heads or tails out of what's going on right now out there with a few (laughs) accidents. Well, I think they reopened the PA Turnpike northbound past uh, Jim Thorpe at this point, but there's some heavy traffic, so you might be delayed a little bit in that area. And then I just got a call about something going on 81 northbound, but I see nothing anywhere on all my satellites and all my helicopters that are out there. Nobody is uh, reporting anything on 81 except a little bit of slowing between the Scranton area and Pittston, but nothing to really get all up in arms about. We do have an accident, however, on Route 29 Harding Slats. I got to tell you about this. Route 29 Harding Slats. It's between Tunkhannock and Dallas. I was driving through there this morning. I've never seen a road fixed so weirdly in my life and over such a long period of time where they either leave the chips in the road. Today it looked chippy and oily, and it's a main main road. I, and I complained on the air the other day about the weird-looking um, painting lines that make you feel like you're going through a funhouse. You know you know what I'm saying. Like, like of course, seizures. Like, <laughs> yes, it was bad. Um, I, I was wondering how come there weren't more accidents on there, and Route 29 Harding Slats near um, Sugar Hollow Road, the old Marshall Sugar Hollow Diner, that was closed down to a crash. It, it, it may still be closed down as well. I can't make heads or tails of that to see what's actually going on in that area. So just do me a favor today. Use caution because it's not pretty. This Pentella Data Internet Traffic Update, we ask you to call 570-883-7269 when you see a traffic problem. Nikki Stone, WILK Traffic. <laughs> That's what happens when I throw her out of her routine. She forgets her name, forgets where she is, talks about sparkly Listen, stuff on the roads. We really need to have a camera in the studio so that people could see that you're throwing your arms up in the air and you're like, oh, my God. Like, what you, you said? Uh, you said something about waving your arms in the air. So I waved my arms in the air. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Rob. See, he's funnier off camera than he is. on. No, never mind. I, I am. <laughs> Here's the Storm Tracker 16 forecast from meteorologist meteorologist Jeremy Luan. Uh, tonight, clear, low 39. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy, high 60. Sunday, clocks go back to 2 a.m., I guess. Sun and clouds, high 60. Monday, sun and clouds with showers by the evening, high 60, and maybe some weather patterns coming in for next week. It's currently 57 degrees and sunny here at 429 at your official weather station, WILK. Welcome back to the Rob O'Donnell Show on WILK News Radio. It is 439 here in the station, 56 degrees and sunny. This is the part of the show where we honor our 
Heroes here at home who made the ultimate sacrifice. 65 police officers made the ultimate sacrifice on this day, three of which are from right here in Pennsylvania. We're going to start off with Detective Sergeant Gary Robert Tacone. Erie Police Department in 2001 died from complications as a result of contracting COVID-19 in the line of duty. Trooper Philip C. Melly, Pennsylvania State Police in 1957. Trooper Melly was shot and killed by a 16-year-old juvenile who had taken three other officers hostage in Douglas Township, Pennsylvania. The three officers had gone to arrest the boy for threatening to kill his father. The boy managed to ambush the officers and held them at gunpoint in a wooded area. As the trooper went to their aid, he slipped. As he fell, the boy shot him with the shotgun, killing him. The boy then put the shotgun down and surrendered. Policeman Thomas F. Gallagher, Philadelphia Police Department in 1922. Policeman Gallagher was shot and killed by one of three men he trapped inside a private garage in 24th and McKean Streets. The men attacked him, struck him in the head with a blackjack, and then shot him twice as he laid on the ground. And those are our three from here in, in our area. I got a text message. Hey, Rob, have you ever attended the Wyoming Valley Veterans Day Parade in Kingston, Wilkesbury, Back Mountain resident? I have not. Said you should attend. It's very special. I'll look into that. I will. I will indeed look into that. They're also having a Veterans Day event up in my hometown in Greenfield Township when they dedicate their Veterans Memorial Park. It's uh, 4:41 here at WILK. Time for traffic and weather. Thank you, Rob. This traffic update is brought to you by Penteladata Internet. Route 29 Hardings Flats, that is all jammed up from 292 to Sandbanks Road between Tonkanic and Dallas due to a wreck. It looks like the road is open, but you might be sitting there a while, so you're going to want to find a way around that area. Um, we also have 81 dipping below 40 miles per hour between Scranton and Pittston. Other than that, there are no new reports of any accidents and no major backups on our major highways. Whenever you see a traffic problem, call our jam line 570-883-7269. Nikki Stone, WILK Traffic. You're going to love my new next story, Nikki, so... I'll try to rush through my other uh -huh. stations to hear it. You, know, you could look at it right here. I have oh. it up. You don't have to see it. Here's the Storm Tracker 16 forecast from meteorologist Jeremy Luan. Tonight, clear, low 39. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy, high 60. Sunday, clocks go back to 2 a.m. Sun and clouds, high 60. Monday, sun and clouds with showers by evening, high 60 as well. It's currently 56 degrees and sunny here. At 442 at your official weather station, WILK. You're with the Rob O'Donnell Show on WILK News Radio. It is 446, 56 degrees and sunny. The Rob O'Donnell Show is brought to you by Road Scholar Transport. You have unique shipping needs, and Road Scholar has unique shipping solutions. Dry van, temperature controlled, and high security are just a few. Visit roadscholar.com. And you just heard that sale on Be the New You, 20% off. I would recommend it. I've done it. I lost 30 pounds on it. I'm in a maintenance phase right now. With the holidays here, I figured, hey, I lost my 30 pounds. Let me hang out for a while. You know, you get these bounce-back diets, and I've hovered around it. You know, I've been 
adding in more of my go-to meals. You know, I'm having my pizza once a week, doing my things here and there, going out to eat a lot more. And with the holidays here, you know, I had a couple pieces of Halloween candy. But still hovering, you know, I'll put on four pounds, then I'll lose them again. Then I'll, you know, I'll be at 32 pounds or 33 pounds I lost. And then I'll head back to 30 pounds. But I figure for November and December, I'm going to just look to maintain where I'm at now. And come January, you know, look to lose that additional 10 or 20 pounds. And I think that'll bring me to exactly where I want to be. And we'll see where it goes. But, you know, that's where I'm at now. So you won't see many changes in it, but that maintenance. You know, you lose 30 pounds, you know the deal with these diets. You go back, you bounce them, and, uh, you know, you put it right back on again. You start from square one. I'm looking to keep that 30, maintain it through the holidays, and that'll be success in itself. You guys, gals, know the struggle out there. So, uh, you know, that's what I'm doing there. So if you don't see any changes in the weight, you know, that's my plan. November, December, I'm going to enjoy some holiday cookies here, some holiday home-cooked meals. And then uh, come January, we'll crack down, see, I'll lose another 10, 20 pounds, and we'll see where it goes from there. I know Halloween is over. I know a lot of you are already looking towards Christmas. Do not. You cannot start celebrating Christmas until Thanksgiving Day at noon when Santa gets off his sleigh and walks into Macy's front door. Sorry, it's just the way I was brought up. It's the way I've <laughs> done done it in my household as well. But um, with Halloween just being passed, I saw this story, and it's a little late, but it'll pretty much scare the hell out of you. Giant parachuting spiders. Now, this isn't a joke. This isn't coming from the onion, the Babylon Bee. This is legit. Giant parachuting spiders are spreading like wildfire across the East Coast. It's called the Juro spider. J-O-R-O, spiders. They're known for their vibrant yellow and black patterns and the ability to weave parachutes. And they're thriving in the Carolinas and are expected to spread across the entire East Coast in the coming years. They've already found them in Maryland. They're heading our way where we border Maryland, people. Clemson University researchers found that the Juros, this type of spider, has made their way from the U.S. aboard shipping containers from Asia nearly a decade ago and have since expanded and resided with a 75,000-square-mile ecosystem across North and South Carolina and Georgia. Some of the spiders, which can grow the size of the palm of your hand, have even been spotted in Maryland as they head north by riding their parachutes. Think about this. A big yellow and black spider that's the size of your hand that webs a parachute that catches the wind and it flies around. <laughs> and it's gone from North and South Carolina to Maryland. Could you imagine... I mean, it sort of looks like a big banana spider. And not only that, they're spreading like wildfire, this, the researchers said. Data shows that the spider is able to inhabit most of the eastern U.S. They say our northern tier, uh, Maine and such like that. Maybe Massachusetts will be out of it, but Pennsylvania is fair game. Re, uh, researchers note that it doesn't have any Natural predators. And they pretty much eat anything. They consume anything that's trapped in its web. So they'll eat butterflies, you know, those stink bugs, you know, bees, whatever gets caught in its web. It will be the dominant spider 
if it's in an area. So it'll push out all other spiders, which are bad for the spiders that actually do the good things in our area. It is venomous, but its fangs cannot penetrate human skin. So although the spiders are large and venomous, scientists say they don't pose a threat to human beings as their fangs are too small, like I said, to penetrate the human skin. They will also likely avoid entering homes as the spiders tend to prefer crafting webs outdoors where they can catch wind and, you know, in the corners of your outdoor buildings and such like that. But again, this is a, the Juro spider is the size of the palm of your hand and it could web parachutes to fly around. So I figured, you know, I read it, I saw it for you out there that are spiders are a no-go. Figured since we're just past uh, Halloween, I would put it out there and bring it up. But um, I hope we don't start seeing them here in Pennsylvania. I mean, I'm not, I'm not opposed to spiders. It's not like I'm afraid of spiders. But if there's a spider the size of the palm of my hand, I might have to reevaluate that. We might have to arm Jake in the control booth if these things are going to be crawling around. Because I can, I can hear these things going. Jake, a, a big black and yellow spider, the palm of your hand, flying around with a parachute? I mean, they are Steelers colors, I guess, right? So, And the Steelers won last night, huh? Heard there were a couple scares at the end, but Tomlin getting into any fights with female referees? No? No, not last night? I've been... Uh, breaking J uh, Jake's chops on that because what was it last week's game he got into a verbal shouting match with the with the female referee yeah yeah I mean they said he, he was he was cursing at the no he was he was he was treating the referee like a referee you know, let's let's be honest there but uh, that's what everybody jumped on that's what I saw just like last night's game I saw this morning one of the headlines were you know the Steelers won but it wasn't pretty <laughs> Well, well, hopefully your team keeps going in the right direction. We'll see. It's uh, 4.50, almost 4.54 here at uh, WILK, 56 degrees. We'll be back with the Rob O'Donnell Show in just a minute. You're with the Rob O'Donnell Show here on WILK News Radio. It is uh, 5.57. Uh, when I told you they're here, I truly mean it, especially with the open border. We've been talking about it. Or Jordanian national has been arrested in Houston, allegedly planning an attack on Jews. A radical Jordanian national living in Texas was allegedly plotting an attack on Houston Jewish community before he was arrested on gun charges. The individual 20 had been studying how to build bombs and posted about his support for killing Jews, federal officers claim. He has viewed specific and detailed content postings on radical organizations and on the Internet, including lessons on how to construct bombs or explosives, FBI director said. Now, he was here on a work visa, temporary work visa, until 2019. And he was caught and applied for asylum and was allowed to stay. There are pictures of him using weapons, multiple weapons at firing ranges. But thankfully, he's behind bars now on charges of unlawfully possession of a firearm by someone who's a non-immigrant visa. And uh, the U.S. magistrate judge, Christina Bryan, 
has ruled that he should remain in custody. She wrote in court documents that he spoke of committing martyrdom in supporting the religious cause that made and made statements that he wants to go to Gaza to fight, according to the documents. He was viewed specific and detailed content posted by radical organizations on the Internet, including lessons how to construct bombs and explosive devices. An affidavit filed in the Southern District of Texas has been in direct contact with others who share this radical mindset and has been conducting physical training and has trained with weapons possibly to commit the attack. The affidavit notes the federal investigators have uh, been monitoring his activities for the past month. And agents conducting open source research saw a video of him firing multiple firearms, including AR-style weapons. He also reportedly visited several different firing ranges across Houston. He entered the U.S. on a non-immigrant visa, which expired in 2019, but has since applied for asylum to obtain work authorization in the United States until 2025, according to the documents. But under federal law, those with non-immigrant visas cannot legally obtain firearms in the United States. Somehow obtain them in the black market. Like I said, they're already here. It's uh, 5 o'clock here at WILK. We'll be back with the Rob O'Donnell Show in just a minute. 